0: Hello
1: and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show
2: and we get their results in two to three business days and back to them via their phone. And if we need to, we can treat the STI if there is a diagnosis and we can consult them with bulk build telephone consults if they've got Medicare to get treatment if it's not feasible that it can be treated over the phone. With
1: schoolies approaching, a sexual health clinic is advising young Australians to get tested for STIs. How is a new app empowering the sexual health of young people? Also, yesterday a local poverty advocacy group launched their third annual survey of low-income renters. What does the survey say about the welfare of our state citizens in our deepening rental crisis? And later in the show...
0: The initial consultation was extended because the first one at Riverley that uh, wasn't successful at all and it had a cultural bias. It didn't have cultural safety for the Aboriginal people.
1: A decision by the South Australian Government to extend the consultation period of the Riverley Park housing development until late November has been met with backlash by traditional owners. We have the details. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up, today, refugee advocates and organisations welcome the High Court of Australia's ruling of indefinite immigration detention being unlawful and unconstitutional. It means refugees and asylum seekers in detention centres will need to be released to be processed in the community. But what will the federal government do after this ruling? The Wires' Eduardo Jordan, our Senior Policy Officer from the Refugee Council of Australia, Asher Hirsch, his first impressions about the High Court's decision.
3: This is a very welcome decision uh, from the High Court. We're still waiting for the full decision to be released, but um, from what we understand, the High Court has finally overturned a case from 2004, um, almost 20 years ago, which ruled that uh, indefinite detention was permissible under the Constitution, which means people could be detained without any um, time limits. So this decision overturning that is very welcome. And we're hopeful that this will result in many people who are currently detained for many years uh, being released finally into the community.
4: So what would this decision mean for the federal government? What would you be asking to the immigration minister about
0: it?
3: Well, the High Court has basically said that the minister can't hold people indefinitely, and that if people can't be returned to their country, then they have to be released from, from detention. So hopefully, we're expecting the minister to uh, review all cases of people who are currently in detention. The average time of detention is uh, about 708 days, uh, and some people have been in detention for more than five years. Uh, these people need to be, um, have their cases urgently reviewed, and if there is no reason for their detention, if they can't be returned to their, other, their, their country, then the High Court had said that they must be released.
4: Okay, so with this decision being made, do you believe Australia needs to rethink about its humanitarian program to allow more refugees?
3: Well, this decision is about uh, how we treat people seeking asylum and other people uh, in our community and um, really re-looking at our detention policies. Uh, Australia is the only country that has a mandatory uh, indefinite detention policy. That means if you do not have a visa, you must be detained. And this decision is a welcome step in dismantling that policy. Uh, in terms of our um, humanitarian program, we've also been calling for the government to realise its own commitment to increase the humanitarian program to 27,000 places. Uh, but this policy in terms of detention is separate to that and really is about how um, Australia goes about uh, its commitment on international humanitarian law.
4: And what are the steps the Refugee Council of Australia will do to support those who will be out of detention?
3: Well, we're hoping that uh, from this decision, uh, many people will be released. We understand that the Department has said at least um, 90 people um, may be immediately affected, but we'll expect there'll be um, hundreds more who also should be released um, from this decision. Uh, And we're hoping that the government um, releases people into the community with adequate um, funding and support services to access support in the community from uh, organisations that support them. Uh, So we'll be ensuring that um, people are not just released um, without any support, that people get the support they need, and that also long-term solutions are found for these people. Just because they're released doesn't mean that they have a permanent visa, so we'll be calling for the government to review their cases and uh, find solutions for them so that they can remain in Australia or uh, find safety elsewhere uh, on a permanent basis.
4: Now, um, I'm sure you're aware of this, but also there's a a big Tamil community in Brisbane and across Australia who are on bridging visas and they're refugees as well. After this decision, what else does the government need to do to allow refugees to stay in Australia?
3: Well, for the Tamil community, I think it's clear that many people will be affected by this decision and hopefully that means people um, from Sri Lanka who can't be sent back to Sri Lanka may be released as well. So we're hoping that um, yeah, this decision does have a positive impact on some of those people who have been in detention for a very long time. And uh, really also highlights the, the way that the government has gone about assessing cases of um, refugees from Sri Lanka, where it's clear that in many cases people can't be returned. Um, there needs to be a permanent solutions found for these people. They need to be given um, permanent safety in Australia if they are indeed refugees and can't be returned back home.
1: Senior Policy Officer from the Refugee Council of Australia, Asha Hirsch, speaking with The Wires' Eduardo Jordan. Yesterday, members from a local poverty advocacy group assembled outside Adelaide's Parliament House to launch their third annual survey of low-income renters amid the state's deepening rental crisis. The report, I'm Scared of My Next Rent Increase by SA Anti-Poverty Network, offers a snapshot from 301 low-income renters. 80% of low-income renters are experiencing rental stress, spending more than 30% of income on rent, according to the survey. The launch follows the South Australian Government's latest announcement introducing a number of rental reforms to Parliament. Some say they are steps in the right direction while others say they will not be enough to relieve the immediate impacts of the rental emergency. I attended the launch to hear some perspectives.
5: I'm here as a renter today and I've had an interesting history with renting. I've rented most of my adult life but at the moment I simply couldn't afford to rent Uh, so I call myself a rental refugee. I'm I have a roof over my head thanks to the care and support of my family and without that I'd be probably living on the street. So I was uh, renting with my wife. We had a house in a southern suburb and we were quite happy there. Uh, our landlord passed away and the family wouldn't negotiate any extension of stay for us. I broke my leg at that around that time so I had an injury and I was off work as well. So we had financial difficulties related to my injury. By that time it was 2022, late 2022, the housing market had already gone through the roof and the, and the prices for anything comparable to what we were living in were just out of the question. So I was fortunate in that my family had a small unit that used to belong to another family member of mine and they allowed us to move in there. I'm a casual employee, so I don't have job in income security. I have multiple casual employers, but the combined inputs of those casual jobs is still insufficient to clear the poverty line, so I simply can't afford to rent.
1: And you say you've had the support of your family, but what impact do you think that being forced out of your original rental
5: property has had? Uh, well, I mean, it's also hurt my ability to work in various ways. When I was renting at a reasonable price, I was able to work very productively from home. We had a shed and my wife and I both have an artistic career as well. Uh, and that's been completely put on hold, simply because we don't have space. So our life has gotten smaller. It's gotten more difficult, and we've had to be more frugal. Even though we're not paying rent, we've experienced financial hardships uh, due to other pressures in the marketplace. But to say a lot of people have it a lot worse than me. So if my parents weren't able to to, to care for me the way they have, um, I'd be living on the street. And I know other people who are. So there are people living in cars. People are couch surfing with friends um, to try and keep afloat. and... If you're tenuously employed at the same time, it's very hard to get back on your feet once you enter that level of, uh, of housing instability. The rental affordability crisis, really the government reforms did nothing to address that. There were some reforms, yes, related to rent bidding. and They're welcome, but they're not powerful strong enough to, to make meaningful change to people who are really struggling to afford anywhere to rent at
1: the moment. Self-described rental refugee Dan is speaking with me at the launch. Along with 80% of low-income renters experiencing rental stress, which is spending over 30% of income on rent, the survey also showed 41% were experiencing rental crisis, which is spending more than 50% of their income on rent. For people on Centrelink payments, 85% were experiencing rental stress and 54% experiencing rental crisis. Anti-Poverty Network Coordinator Paz Forgioni says this year's survey reflects an alarming number of people in paid work who are experiencing rental crisis compared with previous years.
3: This country's had a rental affordability crisis for some time. What we're seeing is that every year that governments choose not to act. Every year that governments choose to allow huge unlimited rent rises to happen. Every year that the governments choose not to cap on rent, we are seeing more and more people who, after they pay their rent, simply do not have the money like available to pay for other essentials like food and medicine and bills and medical costs.
1: According to a statement from the South Australian government, the state's vacancy rate is now less than 1%. Angela, another of SA's low-income renters, says a change in her personal situation has left her battling the severe impact of rising rental costs on a pension as fear of being forced out of the market perpetuates.
6: I formerly had my elderly mother living with me. I was her part-time carer. She'd been living with me since 2011 and she's just gone into aged care due to significant comorbidities so it's not safe for her to live here anymore. She had a very major fall. I'm now living on my own. I myself have some very major health issues and I'm now, just for the past three years, on the DSP trying to navigate a pathway for myself and trying to cope with a rental crisis. I have previously worked, but due to my health breaking down, I now find myself on the DSP,
1: which I never thought I would be. How are you navigating that situation with your own personal changes? At the moment, it's frightening. It's a little
6: bit like walking on a tightrope. I've just recently signed my new lease and the rent has gone up $60 a fortnight. In regards to this house, when I did move in, it was a brand new house. I was working back then. I don't want to go backwards because it affects your mental health. I have to say that the property owners I have now are considerate, but we live in a volatile world now and that's having an impact, hence the $60 a fortnight increase now given my income that's really hit me fortunately i'm pretty good at navigating financially and looking at ways of cutting back, there's only so far you can go. In regard to this property, I'm probably only one or maybe two rental increases from being priced out of here.
1: And how great is the fear of of having to leave or, or being forced out of that rental property due to a price increase in this current market? It's frightening because I will not find anything else
6: to this standard. I'm also very aware that the amount of rent that I pay at the moment, well, it would be considered still below market. It's it's already starting to happen. And you can see it's like walking with the tsunami behind you. You know that the tsunami is behind you. It's only a matter of time. These are outside forces that I just
1: don't have any control over. Anti-Poverty Network's Paz Forgioni speaking with me. For more on the rental reforms introduced to South Australian Parliament and to hear the extended version of the interview, visit our website, thewire.org.au.
4: Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme.
1: decision by the South Australian Government to extend the consultation period for the Riverlea Park housing development until late November has been met with backlash by traditional owners. Members of the Ghana community say South Australian Minister for Aboriginal Affairs Kayam Mayor, is breaching his legislative obligation to consult with traditional owners and interested Aboriginal parties before making decisions that affect Aboriginal cultural heritage. Initially, the South Australian housing development of 12,000 homes was brought to a standstill in July for just a short time after the discovery of ancestral remains on a burial ground at the site before resuming. According to SA governments, have your say website, Walker Buckland Parks Development, has since expanded its original application area to include three additional areas of land within its existing development approval. I spoke with Uncle Ian Carter, Guna Elder, traditional owner and common law holder to find out more on the consultation around the cultural site and the application expansion.
0: The development site is, a lot of people know it as Buckland Park. It's a Riverley development is is like a suburb now of, of Adelaide. Buckland Park has a history of Aboriginal heritage there, archaeological survey that was done before. There was a lot of artefacts and stone chips and, and signage of Aboriginal objects. The problem that we've got is anything under the ground you can't tell it's there until obviously you unearth it. Mm-hmm. When they were doing earthworks, they unearthed two uh, skeletal remains, which they then have to stop work, notify the minister for the minister to give authorisations to, to be able to deal with those remains. And that's uh, under one of like Aboriginal Heritage Act. So he gives a section 21-23 to damage, disturb and remove. They took the initial two skeletal remains out. And they're full skeletals, not, not parts of, they're full. And then they kept digging and they actually unearthed 31. What I don't understand is why when they got to, say, the four or six mark, why they didn't put a uh, one of the um, earth x raying mm-hmm. machines over it, run it over the ground, and they would have been able to tell that the, the remains uh, were there. The Ghana people and traditional owners were saying that We want to know why they're there and, and the reasoning behind that.
1: And I understand that the development project was put on hold briefly in July while the police were informed and then it uh, resumed, but has since had the consultation period for the application extended from the 16th of October to November 17, and then further extended to the 24th of November from my understanding. So from your understanding, can you tell me any more about this?
0: The initial consultation was extended because the first one at Riverlea that uh, wasn't successful at all, and it had a cultural bias. It didn't have cultural safety for the Aboriginal people. Then was transferred to a independent area, which was uh, Mawson Lakes. So they had to extend the uh, the first one to cover the next meeting at Mawson Lakes. That meeting at Mawson Lakes community had a had a meeting and put a number of recommendations and their response to the consultation. I actually hand-delivered our response to the consultation period, but Walker Corporation have what's called a... they have the archaeological reports for that project and they also have a cultural heritage management plan for that site, which says how they're going to deal with Aboriginal heritage. They won't let us see any of the reports or any of the cultural heritage management plan.
1: On the govern- the SA government Have Your Say website, um, it says, and I quote, if you're a traditional owner or Aboriginal party with an interest in the matter, we want to hear your views about the project. So have you made attempts to get it in touch and have you
0: received any contact for proper consultation? We've requested consultation that was one of the things with the um, premier Peter Menelakis and we thought that was what was going to happen from the mm-hmm. meeting but it, but it's not I mean that just process that just gone on and the only reason I can see they've added the three areas in and allowed them is so they can fast track the approvals because in actual fact it's a second lot of things so it should be another approval and we should have a consultation process that goes with that but we're not going to have it. And can you offer
1: any insight into what other members of the Ghana community have said about this approach or about, you know, what you say is the lack of cultural safety in the approach around this?
0: The lack of cultural safety has been around the consultation process and it was at the initial first meeting. Since then we had one independent meeting away from there so thing, it was just the initial meeting the cultural safety wasn't there so it was relating to the first one the second issue is that we already handed up our submissions and that mm-hmm. and that was from the consultation meeting we had at Mawson Lakes and in there was our recommendations and that, 10 days later they opened it up because Walker Corporation had, had varied their uh, their application and the only reason I can see for them to vary that is because the government is going to let them fast track the approvals for it
1: uncle ian carter ghana elder traditional owner and common law holder speaking with me the full version of that interview is on our website thewire.org.au the wire reached out to attorney general of south australia and minister for aboriginal affairs kaya mayor's office for comment schoolies across the country is just around the corner and a sexual health clinic is advising young Australians to get tested for STIs. A new app developed by Stigma Health is offering online referrals and with a bulk billing option, giving young Australians better access to a GP Australia wide. This comes as one in 25 people between 15 and 29 had chlamydia in 2021 and less than a third of those were diagnosed, spreading the condition further. The wise Eduardo Jordan, our CEO of Hyphen Health, James Sneddon, to explain more about the referral app. So
2: we've discovered, you know, that the new generation would have to define or look up the latest name for it. They're, really, they're using app search like our generation uses Google search, like they're looking for solutions via the app store, or via Apple search. So further, back, you know, they're looking for relationships via app search. So we went into building a most convenient way um, app to access... STI testing for our stigma Health and Prep Health clinics and yeah it's been a real game changer for us. People are adopting it, it's just it's a format they're used to and it offers a lot more um, you know, education and ongoing support for the situations that aren't necessarily as available with just an online app as we've had in the past.
4: Why is it important for young people to get tested for an STI and what are the statistics around STIs in young Australians?
2: Yeah, so young Australians are living like more sex-positive lives than ever, and it's thanks to you know apps of you know Tinder, Bumble, Grinder. Your yeah, dating apps have really just changed the dynamic, and you know it's a modern world too, so everyone's more liberal and sex is great, so we're we all sex-positive. So the asymptomatic to make nature of STIs means most people are spreading STIs without even knowing it, or yeah, just living with an unknown STI that could cause them future complications. So it's like one in 25 Australian that's under 29 had a chlamydia or gonorrhea last year. And only one third of those people received a diagnosis. So we've got two thirds of the people with chlamydia and gonorrhea in that young person age group not diagnosed. So they're out there spreading the infection. It just gets worse. So yeah, that, that's that's some of the statistic. But you know, overall, SCI testing, I don't think young people are averted to it. It's just more inconvenient. And they probably do have an aversion to talk to their doctor. And then, you know, messages like, if it's not on, it's not on, or, you know, the, in the past, the Grim Reaper was used back in the 80s, which is probably not something most young people relate to these days.
4: You were mentioning as well, you know, these awkward uh, conversations with the GP and all that. What are some of the challenges you think young people face to get access to these referrals
0: and tests as well? Uh, access to referrals
2: comes down to anything from costs, so socioeconomic barriers to psychosocial barriers. So, uh, people are impeded by their own cultural issues, you know, not talking about sex in their community locally. Uh, it shows very diverse population, as we all know, and it's just not necessarily as sex-positive within different dynamics in society, or like within different groups. So that's there's one barrier. And then the opportunity costs too, you know, you're booking a CGP, it's, you wait two hours for an appointment that's not running on time, the doctor inadvertently could be dismissive or, you know, you, you see the doctor. We very much react. We go to the doctor when we're sick. So if we're asymptomatic, we're, we're not seeing the doctor as well. So there's multiple reasons why young people aren't seeing the doctor for sexual health. But the solutions, yeah, our online and app can overcome. So that's where we're getting traction.
4: Now, is the app working all across Australia and all across the regions as possible?
2: Yeah, we're Australia-wide. Uh, we've got 30, over 30,000 patients are in every state and territory and yeah, as far-reaching as the Australian population so we're everywhere. We refer testing via those platforms and, and patients can go get tested at any pathology clinic near them and we get their results in two to three business days and back to them via their phone. And If we need to, we can treat their STI if there is a diagnosis and we can consult them with bulk-billed telephone consults if they've got Medicare to get treatment if it's not feasible that it can be treated over the phone. <laughs> so
4: And the last question, what has the feedback been from, you know, users about this app? I mean young people, what do they tell you about it?
2: People just love the convenience of our service. They're they're getting STI tested for the first time. Like over thirty percent of our customers have never been tested before. They're identifying that, you know, it is it is actually cheap because even our full cost method, which doesn't receive any Medicare subsidy is less than most people pay in the gap when they see a GP, so they like that feature. But this, I think the opportunity cost of convenience is probably the biggest plus. And then on top of that, they don't, you know, just don't have to go through any awkward conversation. So it's just overall easier in every aspect.
1: Hyphen Health, James Sneddon, speaking with the wires, Eduardo Jordan. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3 Z in Nam Melbourne, 4 Z and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Emma Wotski, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.